Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like birds of a feather, which is part (laughs) of uh, an English proverb, um, which is like birds of a feather flock Mm. together. And an English comedy show. It is an English comedy show, which actually we both know weirdly. uh, Leslie Joseph, you acted with her when you were a child. Yeah, and I. That's what they call us, don't they, Sharon and Tracy? They do, and that's what I was thinking. Though, (laughs) is this idea of like chosen family of kind of like how your your friends can become like just as important as the people that you grew up with mm. and we at the moment obviously have the show breakfast under the tree which was curated by yourself russell in margate Correct. a carl friedman gallery and there's an amazing yep. painting it's one of my favorite works in the show by today's guest which shares that title birds of a feather flock together and it's a new family portrait so we can chat about that later mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and both of us collect this artist's work we have I think you actually have paintings, but I or a painting, but I, I actually have a wonderful work on paper from a recent uh, exhibition with James Fuentes, who's a friend of ours, long term friend of ours in New York. And today's guest will also be having a major solo show opening very soon, which mm-hmm. is what this interview is here to celebrate. So mm-hmm. we would like to welcome all the way from New York, Oscar, Oscar Hi, Oscar. Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. <laughs> Good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Now, Oscar, I want you to have a really strong Scouse accent and you haven't, and it's always shocked me because you are from Liverpool in the UK. Yes, that's that's right. where you're, you were born yeah. uh, to Cantonese uh, Chinese parents, yeah. and now you reside in the States. But why have you not got a strong <laughs> Liverpudlian accent? Why am I not talking to Silla Black? <laughs> um, I guess because I've been in New York for quite some time now but even back in Liverpool compared to my peers I don't have the strongest accent I don't know why I just never kind of stuck but I definitely still got there's some a little something there well I guess being in America I found it myself going over there being from Essex is that you end up having to uh, repeat yourself a lot because people can't understand what you're saying I repeat myself all the time smoothing out your accent yeah I do it all all the time I repeat myself constantly people just Mm -hmm. don't really understand which is you know it is what it is i have to adapt mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so new york for you is you would say home now because you you are from the uk and you went to new york to study but it felt like reading all of your manifestos and reading interviews with you it always felt like new york was the plan from the beginning as an artist that's where you felt like you needed to be to thrive 
Yeah, I mean, Liverpool is always going to be home for me, obviously. Um, but I mean, yeah, New York, I think, is kind of where it's at for me, and I would, would consider it home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I can always return to Liverpool, and I'll always have family there for me. But, yeah, I guess I'm just based in New York now. And unfortunately, I haven't been back to Liverpool in over a year because of COVID. Um, so I guess that, that's also kind of why my accent's kind of softened a bit because I haven't had a chance to kind of t- top it up in a while. Uh, yeah. But when we first met, you were in Liverpool. You were That's where you were in the lockdown. We were introduced by uh, another artist, friend of Talkart, friend of ourselves, Deron Langberg. Mm-hmm. And he said, you've got to check out my friend Oscar's work. And I did. And instantly I was like, this is exceptional work. I was really, really excited about it. And then I told everyone I could about it and got as many people as possible excited <laughs> for that. Yeah, that was, as I was. That's great, yeah. <laughs> but you were in, you were locked down in Liverpool, right? Yeah, I was actually, um, that semester, my third year of university, I was actually on a study abroad in Paris. That was supposed to be from January till August, but then we had to leave midway during March. Um, which is very sad. So I took a Eurostar back home in March, back to Liverpool, um, where I was for most of the kind of first part of lockdown until August, where I came back to the US. So yeah, I was in Liverpool back then. And what, what was that? What was that like creatively for you? I mean, it's a scary time for everyone, but being, you know, you're back in your parents' house, right? Mm-hmm. And then what was that like for you? stopping your degree and then not not sort of realizing where the future was going for the work how how was that for you it was i think from then on it kind of felt like i graduated um because i was still technically doing a study abroad so i was taking all these like online zoom classes in french <laughs> um even though i was in liverpool um and you I can speak french right i mean i can a, a bit i'm not fluent at all um, but, but more I'll, fluent than Chinese. Yeah, yeah, more fluent yeah. than Chinese. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I was just kind of listening to these like lecture recordings in French, at, like 1.5 times the speed and playing video games during it or making artwork during it. Um, I guess creatively, I, I was actually very productive because um, I didn't really have much else to do. Uh, most of my friends in Liverpool, they were still doing their university courses um so during that time march april may it was kind of just alone it kind of felt like i kind of regressed back to being a teenager in -hmm. secondary school just playing like video games all all day during the summer um but creatively i actually did a lot of things and i think oh so for example that piece birds of a feather um that piece was kind of about kind of family and connection kind of chosen family and obviously, the two of the people in the piece weren't with me. They were in America. So I asked them to kind of take pictures, of, take photos of themselves in a particular way that I could use as reference. And then I kind of combine them through the painting. Um, so I think it really was a kind of way of like seeking kind of community, community and communion, despite being very, very distanced. And it was a very anxious time as well, because I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to return to the US, because Trump was saying all, all sorts of things about student visas and all that kind of stuff. Right. 
I remember when you sent that painting to us in Margate and it was like ages ago because because the show got so postponed. It kept getting yeah. postponed and postponed and then we were meant to do that event and you were going to come over and then that got cancelled. It's just been so Very frustrating. Sad. But but it's really interesting to see in the time from when, when you sent that painting. It was actually unstretched because um, mm. you painted it without the um, stretcher and then we, we stretched it here in Margate for you. And um, I remember when it arrived and then... In that period of time, how you've kind of risen, you know, like I, I originally knew you through through Russell, like, you know, sending me images of, of your works from your studio. And then you did that amazing show in April this year um, in Rome uh, mm -hmm. with T293 Gallery, which was called Crane Seeking Comfort. And that show was so extraordinary. And I only experienced it through photos. But can you speak a bit about that experience of putting on, on that show in Italy and, and how it was like, you know, curating it from afar, I guess? Yeah, um, I think with that show and also with uh, your guys' show, is very odd because I didn't get the chance to see them in person. Um, like with Birds of Feather, the piece in your show, I, I haven't seen that piece physically for over a year. And I've only kind of seen it through photos people have taken and through Instagram. And I was saying, with parents, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my parents, yeah, yeah my parents actually saw it. Yeah, how were they? How are they? They were, they were so big fans amazing. of you both. So your brother sweet. is so cool. I was <laughs> really, I love your mom. I was yeah, so overly excited, Oscar. We did hilarious, like, family portraits of all of us with them. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Sending yeah. you them. It was very That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, so I just haven't, even with the Rome show, I didn't really see, I had all the works in my studio, but I didn't really see them stretched um, and kind of side by side in like a normal kind of gallery context. Um, so on that front, it was very odd, I guess, to not see the works in person. Um, and that's why I'm looking forward to the show at James Fuentes, which is going to be in person, be able to see all these works kind of together. Um, and I think also with during quarantine, during the pandemic and sending works off to be shown and then not really seeing them for a long time. It doesn't really feel that real. It kind of feels like I just sent them off. I don't see them again. Mm -hmm. I see them on pictures on the internet and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it, it's been a kind of surreal experience and um, I'm excited to yeah, see it in person finally. And yeah, I was, I was really sad I couldn't come to the UK, to Margate, to the event. That was very sad. Um, so with the show in Rome, how come, um, I, I know that you had, you had like eight mid-sized works, mm -hmm. but they were oil paintings, but in that show they were actually on paper. Mm -hmm. So um, how long have you painted on paper? Is that, is that something that's quite important to you? Um, I often sketch on paper with oil paint. Often I just throw it away because it's just kind of a sketch. Mm. Um, so this show is actually my first kind of foray into using oil paint on paper and I kind of gesso off white paper. So it, it's it's like, it's not on bare paper, otherwise it would kind of, you know, rot. Oh yeah. Um, I did some pieces before, that I think Russell, you have mm. um, paintings on paper. And that kind of was a way, especially when I was uh, in lockdown, and I guess also in Paris when I was um, doing my semester there, I did a lot of books on paper because it's very kind of cheap and inexpensive and it's very quick and small. And so the show in Rome was a way for me to um, lean into that and working more on, more on paper. Um, and especially as I was getting more into um, calligraphy, Chinese calligraphy, East Asian calligraphy, and often that's done on paper. And so I wanted to replicate that. 
um, or kind of work with that tradition. So I guess that's where um, my works in paper and that practice kind of came from. So then the, you, the way you work on the paper is that sometimes you apply ink on the reverse of the paper to let it soak through and then work on the other side? Yeah, that was... Um, so I recently had a works in paper show at James Fuentes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for a few of the pieces, I would apply ink on the back of the paper and then it kind of mm-hmm. seeped through t- to the front. Yeah. Very cool. So the show that you had in uh, Italy at Teaching R3 Gallery was called Cranes Seeking Comfort. Now, yeah. something that people come into your work, and I'm sure people are Googling now or they're looking you up on Instagram, there is the, the character, the motif of the crane and lots of other motifs like cowboy hats and uh, sheriff stars and the rooster and the ball. These all appear in your practice a lot, but the crane especially is really important for you because that relates to your name but also relates to how you see yourself within your practice how you are revealing yourself yeah so my name in chinese or cantonese refers to an idiom that involves a bird and my mother's kind of nicknamed me like little bird sometimes so i kind of went with it to try and um i use the bird for my practice to symbolize myself and the bird can be a kind of variety of different birds. Sometimes it's been doves, pigeons. Um, but the crane, the crane is a really kind of important symbol in East Asian culture. It's a kind of a symbol of auspiciousness, of, I don't know, look. Um, and so all my work kind of uses East Asian iconography. And so using the crane kind of seemed like a really natural bird to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also just beautiful. Um, yeah, I really just fell in love with using the crane. And there's a lot of really wonderful paintings of cranes done by a lot of Japanese artists, a lot of Chinese artists that I, um, I study and I kind of copy. Um, yeah. And this, this is the red crowned crane. Yeah. Because he always has a little red feature. But I've read that for you, you're, a lot of your works are self-portraits. Mm-hmm. But then also when you're not present, you do place the crane in there to represent you, to show that you are present in the scenes that you're creating and putting out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I always like to, whenever I'm painting someone else, um, it's not really that I'm painting a kind of individual person. I'm mm-hmm. painting you know, my own relationship to this person because I can only ever really speak on my relationship to this person. I can't really speak for them. Um, and so always what I, try, what I try and paint is the relationship that I share with the person. So I'm always present in the painting. Um, and so I make that apparent, or I try and make it apparent by using the bird as a kind of symbol for myself. Sometimes in my works, I'll show the relationship that I have with the person by representing them with a symbol and then having that symbol kind of interact with the bird, which symbolizes myself. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you so you also grew up so we said in Liverpool, but your parents run a Chinese restaurant, yeah. and you you were a, you worked there as a waiter in your younger years, and I'm sure you'll probably do that again and go and visit, but in a different yeah. situation. But you grew up with Chinese visual culture around you, Chinese like ephemera and artworks. But it wasn't until later in your training that you realised the effect that had on you, and you really respected that more. Right after a trip back home to China for the first time? Yeah, it was after my granddad passed away, um, I think in 2018, the fall. 
Um, and he's very, very old. He's my dad's dad. And I, you know, frankly, didn't really know a lot about him. He only spoke Chinese. I only really speak English. And so when I go to China as a kid, he would just be this kind of old, smiling grandpa figure. And I didn't really know anything about him really at all. And so I went in the fall during the school semester to China um, to be there for my dad, because obviously he was arranging everything, always helping arrange everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember really clearly going into my granddad's room um, in this kind of apartment and just, I'd never actually been inside. I, as a kid, I would always kind of creep past and like stick my head in the, in the doorway. Um, but I never go inside. And so after he passed, um, my dad and like his siblings had already kind of gone through his stuff. Um, then they let me go through his stuff. And I just, there was just so much kind of ephemera and kind of his possessions, his objects, his books, his calligraphy pens, his journals and notebooks, all this stuff that made me re kind of realize that this was a, a whole person, you know, this really significant person um, to my family who I didn't know anything about. And I was rummaging through all this stuff. I still have a few of his things in my room. Um, you know, like really, really old, like cloth bound paper books, really brown paper, mm -hmm. um, really old kind of ink and things like that. And it was very surreal to kind of think that this person I, who I knew nothing about um, had this whole life, had this whole personality. Um, and I felt it was, it was kind of sad, you know, not being able to kind of communicate with my grandparents and know them in that way. And so I think, yeah, after that trip, I kind of felt a bit odd, I guess, which I think is always good for artistic uh, production and innovation. Why, why is that? Why would an oddness be a good uh, stimulus for art? Because it's kind of this tension within yourself that you feel the need to resolve. Um, and for me, I resolved it by kind of looking more into um, kind of Chinese-ness and Eastern Asian iconography. Um, and exploring it more with my work and exploring this kind of relationship that someone of the diaspora might have is this kind of estrangedness to the kind of quote-unquote motherland, but also this familiarity. You know, in a way that like people, when I was in China, people would like speak to me in Chinese and then I would just give them this kind of blank, earnest look and then they'd be like, oh, he doesn't speak Chinese. So that there's a kind of familiarity and yet instant uh, foreignness um, mm. that I began to explore more and more in my work ever since that trip. I um, I really began to love because uh, obviously your your work is very figurative and and that's the kind of access point I think for most people so far with your work. But when Russell started sending me these images, um, first from the show in Rome, but then the online exhibition you did with James, your first time you worked with James Fuentes, mm -hmm. called A Dozen Poem Pictures. I loved all these text uh, paintings you were making. And I'm really interested in this, in this link between the Chinese language, like kind of fragments, um, and then English language, but mm. also kind of like hidden messages, um, almost like scrolls that appear yeah. in the backgrounds of the paintings. And the one we have in Margate, every time I'm showing it to people, people often don't even notice it because they're looking at the face, you know, particularly your face, or because you're actually in that painting. Um, yeah. It's like a self-portrait of you with two of your friends. But I love all these hidden layers. Mm. And the more you look, 
look, the more I notice. So sometimes I haven't even seen them, and then suddenly you see another scroll or you see another text. Is that quite? Is that, has that been quite an enjoyable thing, like to to explore that kind of use of text in in your work? Yeah, it's been really. I, I think writing is a big part of my practice as well, and I draw a lot from literature um, for my practice. And I kind of I like. So I pretty much only work on one painting at a time. I can get pretty fixated and obsessive. And that's why they take so long, probably too long, actually. I should probably um, work on multiple paintings at the same time to improve my workflow, I guess. Um, but I kind of like the idea of having a painting slowly reveal itself to you over time and uh, being all these kind of little details um, that you don't, you don't really get on first glance. Um, and I think it's important because I think, you know, our work and paint, especially figurative paintings, I think I think people um, can consume them too quickly. Like it's like, oh, it's a figurative painting, that's it. There's right. a face, there's a body, that's it. Um, and so I kind of like having these extra details in them. I guess to try and not to test the viewer, but to try and invite the viewer to uh, look more carefully at them and to really take their time with the painting. Yeah, you, you encourage them to slow down and, and over time, the, the text is indecipherable on first glance, but the longer you spend with it and the more you see your work, you can start to decipher it. And you, you are encouraging of the viewer to take the time to try and understand what you're writing. Yeah, like I, I, I like the idea of as an artist and as someone who produces artworks that other people see to try and create a relationship between the viewer and the artwork, you know, and it's kind of two-way street. It's not just about the viewer kind of instantly getting the artwork. I think the artwork also does something to the viewer and invites the viewer as well to look into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, li I like the fact you say you reference literature a lot because I've been looking up uh, at some of your manifestos and people that you spoke to and there's a real clear message that comes through. There's, there's a, a, a writer called Edouard Glissant, is that how you say his name? Glissant, and yeah. it's the right to opacity is one of the uh, pieces he's wrote, which is the fact that, you know, you don't have to commit to a clear legibility in your art. Mm. And that is kind of, once I saw that, well, yeah, that's Oscar's practice because you are not asking for everything to be understood. You're not mm. asking for an audience to go here, go here's everything. You're asking for them to do the work and you're also asking for them to accept the fact that they're not going to know everything that's going on in this painting. And it is a lot of your personal autobiographical coding that's going in there yeah. that no one will ever know about. Yeah, like I think on opacity, I think, especially with kind of minority artists or artists of colour, I think, um, you know, the market kind of likes us a lot right now. And I'm kind of wary of... Um, people thinking that they instantly get like uh, an artist of colors work, just instantly kind of knowing it and knowing what, what it's about. Mm -hmm. When in actuality, it's not that simple. It's not to say that there should be a kind of antagonistic relationship uh, between an artwork and a viewer. I think, yeah, like you said, there's more of a, I think work needs to be done on both sides on the viewer's part to try and understand the painting or the artwork, but not in a way that, consumes it all entirely, you know, that leaves some kind of mystery and opacity. And yeah, because my work is kind of, it's my own life and the people in it, 
Um, I don't want to kind of. I think there's always a risk of overexposing yourself and your relationships and your your people. And I don't want to do that, and so that's kind of why I'm trying to make these paintings inviting, but also not completely legible. Yeah, well, it's like the title of your show, Crane Seeking Comfort, and if you yourself are the crane, are you seeking comfort? Is that is that an autobiographical message that's going out there to you know the the reader the 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 viewer? Yeah, I was going through the kind of the end of a long term relationship, and so. Crane seeking comforts was a way to, um, <laughs> you know, the first few, the, the months after you end a relationship, you can go a bit kind of wild, and so yeah. <laughs> crane yeah. seeking comforts was a the seeking comfort is meant to allude to you know those gay confidential ads you see where like all the man seeks like comfort and oh, like yes. whatever, and so crane seeking comfort was a way to allude to that, and the the bird figure in uh, the paintings. Is meant to be representative of my myself, um, and the birds doing all sorts of things. So you can kind of deduce uh, what I was what I was doing. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a couple of birds uh, fucking in the street next to an iPhone. Uh, there's like a, <laughs> a bird, and I think there's a, uh, a pigeon with an erection at one point that has like mm. a like a flag coming out of it, which is uh, obviously having a good time. Um, I mean, one of the ones I've got is a chicken dick. Which is yeah, a good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these I can see, you know, these queer narratives or you know yeah. these male, male narratives that are also going through these bird figures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enough said. Enough said, Ross. You, you described that really well. Um, can I? Can we talk a bit about the influence of calligraphy and also graffiti and kind of like? Because we, we we spoke recently with another artist um, who's based in London called Mandy El Saeed and. Um, she was talking about her father and like um, his own interest in calligraphy and his, his calligraphy practice. So for her, it was very kind of close to home. But um, was calligraphy something that you've actually like practiced yourself, like, or, or is it something that that is more of a inspiration visually? It's more of an inspiration visually. Um, calligraphy is it's an art, and yeah, I don't. It, it, it takes a lot of training. Yeah. Um, like specifically Chinese calligraphy, it, there's such a it, yeah, it's an art. There's such a beauty to it, and I don't tradition, know. Tradition, kind of like ancient tradition. Yeah, and I really don't know <laughs> how to do it. Um, I'm just definitely inspired by it, and yeah. I studied calligraphy in the sense that I literally copy calligraphy, mm. um, not really understanding the actual meanings behind the characters and stuff. And in calligraphy, you know, uses a single brush, like a kind of really sensitive brush that you vary the brush stroke based on your pressure. Whereas when I copy it, um, I use a small brush and I kind of draw out the shape. So rather than like a single stroke, I'll kind of outline it. And that's how I kind of study calligraphy. So I'm coming at it at a kind of, <laughs> at a very maybe heretical angle. Um, in the fact that I'm just copying it and not really doing the right, you know, the proper flow and I don't really have the training for it. Um, but it's something that so my granddad, my dad on my mother's side, I, I actually, you know, both granddads, they both did calligraphy. Um, and my granddad on my mother's side, um, there's some calligraphy he did that's in my family home um, that I, I always kind of loved and felt a kind of connection to him that way, even though I didn't really understand what the calligraphy was about. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, and it was also actually after I went to China in 2018, I went to this art bookstore and I got a few calligraphy books, and that was really kind of uh, foundational to my practice. Because um, especially so, those books, the calligraphy was done on off-white paper, kind of beige's paper. Paper, mm-hmm. so that's where my kind of um, practice of using transparent gesso on kind of raw canvas to give that kind of off-white color and using paper as well. That's where that all came from. And graffiti, I think, came from, um, especially in New York, there's a lot of graffiti. Um, Just walking around New York, if you walk around long enough, you'll see there's, you know, the same graffiti artists doing the same tags, doing the same types of um, graffitis. And sometimes they'll write vertically, sometimes they'll write horizontally. And oftentimes you can't really understand what it's saying. Only someone who is really into graffiti or the artist themselves like understands what the actual word says or what the name says. And so there's a very similar relationship um, to the way I see calligraphy and, and Chinese characters in the fact that it's an object of beauty and there's a familiarity. You know, with graffiti, you can kind of tell the English words or English letters. Mm. Um, but so you can't really grasp the full meaning um, and so yeah just seeing graffiti on the streets there's I think it's kind of it's very similar to Chinese calligraphy these artists are really distorting and working and remixing the English language in really beautiful ways and so that's where the kind of connection for me came from I guess just through observation um, and then trying to merge it within my own practice mm. Yeah, and it fits in very well with that idea of having to sort of all the complex layers that build up, say, a painting of yours and deciphering and having to spend time sort of decoding all of these different messages. So it makes total sense, yeah. I just love the idea of the city as well. I think, you know, even with calligraphy, there's there's something about the movement of letters and, you know, it can become like a motion rather than even just words. And it becomes a picture, even though it's a word, totally, it then yeah. becomes a... a work of art in itself yeah that's awesome yeah and like sometimes there's this one wall nearby where i live where the artist has repeated the same tag multiple times and it kind of evolves a bit each time you can tell that they've kind of been practicing on this wall and you can see the different iterations of it and it's just it's crazy it's really lovely i also like you know when when graffiti um artists have have like their tag Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily know that word because it's a made-up word. If you think of someone really famous like Cause, a previous guest on our show, but like the word Cause, it's like it's not a word you would have ever known, really. Yeah. So it, when you see it, if you're on a train and you see it, it's like, what is that? Like, it is just like this other language, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So your work is, um, as we're talking about the motives that come through, like the crane and uh, the East Asian references, but it is a hybrid of of the East and the West. But America, especially in the West, feels like it has such a an incredible pull for you visually, mm-hmm. alongside with uh, East Asian uh, motifs. So, like we mentioned earlier on, that we've got like your characters appear in cowboy hats, or there's the sheriff badge. Uh, which feels the very. I have has a sheriff badge. That's on right. It. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Love which it. feels very Americana, yeah. um, and 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 the cowboy hat and and the, a Chinese character in in a cowboy hat is yeah. something that y- you spoke to me recently about an artist. And as soon as I saw the image, I can't get that out of my head. And suddenly there is a synergy between you and that artist, who's a big hero of yours. But what is what what is why has America's uh, kind of Americana imagery been such a pull for you? And can we talk a bit about this artist? Mon Monk. Yes. Yeah. Martin yeah. Mon Oh, I love him. 
Um, I think Americana came from, I think, you know, so in Britain, I am Chinese British or British born Chinese. That's a kind of political designation or like the, the, the wild take on a census. Um, whereas in America, I instantly kind of became Asian American, even though I'm not technically American. Um, and I, I guess I just kind of really was interested in Asia America and the kind of history of Chinese people in America. Um, yeah, and I, I was really, in, I think as a foreigner to America, I was just really interested in the kind of way that America constructs its own myth. Like if you think of, um, if you think of like the kind of Wild West and the kind of rugged like cowboy and frontiersman, um, the Marlboro Roman, for example, these kinds of ideas that, these kind of myths basically that America tells itself. Um, you know, that America is, was built by, you know, the self-reliant white man, basically. Um, and then the more I kind of study, the more I learn about history of Chinese labor, especially in the America, in the Americas. Um, for example, um, the construction of the transcontinental railroad um, in the kind of westward expansion that enabled um, the United States to colonize and conquer the rest of America um, was constructed by thousands of imported Chinese coolie laborers in the late 1800s. And yet, in the archives, in the kind of images, um, the recorded evidence of the construction, they were like all missed out. They were specifically just pushed out of the picture um, to try and pretend that these railroads were, you know, built by just uh, white people. And in actuality, they're built by Chinese people. Um, and so I was interested in that kind of myth and the kind of, yeah, the, cons the construction of the American myth is what I was really interested in. And so I think the cowboy, having a Chinese cowboy is a way to draw attention to that and the fact that, yes, there were Chinese people, there were Asian people in the West, um, in the kind of formation of America, and they were vital to its very construction. Um, and yet they were missed out from the kind of popular imagination of that time. And so, yeah, I guess that's where I kind of came from. It also came from a kind of homoeroticism of cowboys, thinking of Brokeback Mountain. Um, so it came from all, all sorts of things, I think. But there's an identity of, of queerness running through your practice, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that is something that um, I, I find really exciting. I think on, on one of your manifestos, you've described yourself as a forward-facing, futurity-focused faggot. Which for me, yeah. <laughs> I remember that in college. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I don't know if you still say that now, but I read that. For, yeah, it's Oscar. I yeah, love yeah. that. But that it, it, there is there is a complexity of identity that runs through all of the uh, images that you're making. Yeah, and I think you know, being queer and being Asian, they're both very related, kind of interlinked. Um, I think the way um, the process of racialization for Asian American or like East Asian folks in America, so the way the kind of attributes they're given as a result of their race. So if you think of, for example, East Asian men being feminized um, itself is a kind of queer thing, you know, to have the kind of assigned gender expectation um, of East Asian men, for example. Um, be feminine when you're a guy 
Um, that itself is really interesting. Um, and I think for, I think for me, the solution isn't to try and, you know, for East Asian men to like, oh no, we're actually like really like buff straight men. For me, it's to try and, uh, what can I say? I guess to try and not lean into it, but I guess to be okay with, um, alternative forms of masculinity. So queer masculinity, like butchness, for example. Um, I guess that's just one example of the way that, you know, being East Asian and being queer kind of interlink. And they're both kind of things I think in tandem with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've, you, you've just been described as saying you have a complex personhood. <laughs> Yeah, well, we all do, I think. Yeah, we all do, yeah. We, we all yeah, do. I, I, I just put I that on my artist statement for some, you know. I love it, it's a good artist statement. It's stuck, it's stuck <laughs> but also on your artist statement, I'm going to read this out as well then, because this is kind of a summary of what you've said about your practice, that what ultimately drives his work is testament with the world ending and all, testament to having lived with others and to living a life rendered in the minor key, painting as a practice of dignity. <laughs> which I, I just really resonates with me. But this, this thing about painting in the minor key and also, you know, in relation to being in the margins, being in the margins sexually, being in the margins as a person of colour, being in the margins as whatever, but then the margins of your paintings as well and your drawings feel incredibly important because the margins feel like they're the places that are really busy they're mm -hmm. peaceful, but there's a, such a busyness in there. That's where you find all the kind of coding. Yeah, it's like, it's which kind of richness, hiding. isn't it? Yeah. It's like a tapestry almost. Yeah, but the, so the mi living in the minor key and living in the margins are really big um, places that you can pull from for uh, energy and for inspiration. Yeah, 100%. I feel like that's just a good evaluation of <laughs> my practice yeah yeah well rob touched on it earlier because they're like scrolls that, that like these ancient scrolls when you're unravel because they have this sort of um feel about them that is 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 of the ancient but yet it, they are so contemporary you know there's iphones appearing in there but yet it's alongside ancient chinese imagery yeah like i definitely want my paintings to be very contemporary um that's why i kind of have iPhone sometimes because um, you know mm -hmm. people have iPhones on their bed oh, and yeah. things like that yeah. so why why Martin Wong when did you first discover his work that Russell mentioned earlier I discovered his work someone introduced me to him I think during university maybe my second year and it was 
it was really is a big revelation because I really didn't know barely any kind of East Asian or Asian artists within art history、uh, of the West, and so finding this guy who's Chinese, gay, and did figurative painting. And did kind of calligraphy style painting and did kind of graffiti、mm. painting, yeah, text, loads of text, isn't yeah, it? yeah, and used a lot of symbols and stuff. And lived and worked in New York was mind blowing and、uh, really humbling, I guess.、Um, his work, yeah, his work is incredible. I'm really, really glad in these past few years he's kind of getting the、um, attention、Absolutely. he deserves. Yeah. Alongside、um, like David Wojnarowicz and the、yeah. artists that you know all died of AIDS and got overlooked, but they were really queer, trailblazing, political artists at the time that were representing such a diverse、uh, audience. Yeah, and I think it's you know a lot of those artists were queer and a lot of them died of AIDS. Yeah,、um, and I think it's really kind of that kind of gap between that generation and the current generation now, and the loss of mentorship.、Um, Yeah, it's just really. I, I think about it often. So, I in, in February I think I curated a show at Tonga Advisory, and we put a piece of Martin Wong's in, and we also put a piece by this artist Sen Kong Chi, who's kind of active in a similar time period.、Um, he was from China, but、um, kind of grew up and was raised in, in America. He's Chinese, and he also died of AIDS.、Um, and so I was speaking to his sister Muna to try and arrange. Um, getting one of his artworks in the show because she handles his estate,、mm-hmm. and it was re- like talking to her. I read a lot by San Quanchi, and I really, really loved his work. Talking to Muna was very, yeah, very surreal to have this connection to someone,、um, a kind of queer elder, I guess,、um, to someone you know who was Asian, who was queer.、Um, Right, whose work I loved and whose themes, whose whose kind of practice deals with a lot of themes I deal with. It's kind of sad. I really wish that I could, you know, speak to these people. That I could speak to、mm-hmm. Sen Kongji. That I could speak to Martin Wong and what they would think about the art world today. What they、mm-hmm. would think about all those things.、Um, It's really、yeah. interesting to think like what what the world would have been like if that whole generation hadn't. Hadn't、yes. you know been wiped out in many yes, in, in yes, a way?、Yes. It's like it was such an extreme loss, and I think、mm. also the the response from the friends that were surviving,、yeah. um, you know, the way they had to recover, and you know, it's so hard. It takes decades, and it's interesting thinking of your generation now, like passing on the baton somehow, and it's like this conversation with artists from thirty, forty years before,、yeah. and it's like a gap where there was this huge chasm, like、mm-hmm. that just. Was filled with grief, and you know, it wasn't a continuation really in art. And we had、um, a visit from Jonathan Anderson, and we were standing in front of your painting, and he actually said to me, he's the designer, fashion designer at Loewe,、um, and J W Anderson, and he said to me, it's really interesting if you look at like John Key or you look at Oscar Yeho, this almost like continuation of, you know, of of that era in a way. It's like a new beginning now. Yeah, and I think, obviously, my generation. Owes a lot to that generation.、Yes. Uh, we all do.、Um, so yeah, it's kind of that gap. I think it's up to us,、um, especially my generation, to kind of look into and study and research those who kind of those who passed and those who kind of paved the way for us.、Um, 
Well, you said you'd like to have a conversation with these artists, but I feel like through your practice, you kind of are because you are carrying that baton on and you are communicating with them. And especially, you know, with Martin's work, I'm sure you'd be pleased for people to make comparisons with his practice and your own. Yeah, I mean, there's a few works that um, reference his works. Like there's a, there's a drawing, uh, a work on paper I did for the James Fuentes show that was a poem that was a response to this painting by Martin Wong called Saturday Night. And that painting kind of these features these two um, Chinese women in a bathtub, naked. And so the, the the work I did was a poem in response to that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm yeah trying to communicate. I guess it's kind of one-sided um, with these artists. Yeah. How often do you write, Oscar? Um, How I write pretty often. Is that to you? It's like a daily thing. I wouldn't. I actually, if I'm not in the studio, I don't really sketch or write that okay. much. Um, I write a lot of poetry for sure. Um, it's not an everyday thing. Sometimes it, it would happen in bursts, basically. But it's pretty important to my work. A lot of my larger paintings also feature kind of fragments or actual kind of poems I've written, although they're you know very hidden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you would you consider reading one of your poems for us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, which one? Let me think. I was asking, I was looking at Crane's Seeking Comforts, but maybe that's a bit too raw. I don't know, but... Let me try and... Let me try one. It's just like one of Russell's favourite things. Oh, I love it. I love a bit brings of performance. Bring some performance into it. Yeah. it brings joy to all of us too. And our listeners. <laughs> it's quite unexpected sometimes to like hear the actual poet or artist reading mm. out their own words. It's powerful. Let me see. Hmm. I can read the most recent one I wrote. Okay. I haven't done a poem about it. It's about New York summer. Um, going to the beach, Jacob Reese Beach. It's his beach in New York, uh, the Rockaways. And I was getting the ferry back. Okay, it's titled Rockaway Ferry. Sit with me. In approaching Manhattan, I want you to look at the architecture of clouds, the Rockaway skyline getting warmer as we near. I see a warship two chariots with misshapen wheels, a crazy battle with the deep maw of heavens. You nod, but I don't think you like such celestial disputes, and I think we drank and smoked a little too much, a little too burnt from Reese's Beach. Passengers all standing up to try and photo-document the fat red orb in the sky sinking below my nebulous theater. But I'm sure they all failed, grasping at such an impossible pearl for they do not know beauty like I see it, looking at you. That was it. That was about my boyfriend. Oh. So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, and this, so this, when it comes to your writing, when it comes to these poems, and that was beautiful, and thank you very much for doing that. So this, <laughs> the, this sections of this will appear in paintings. Will you mm. ever release these as texts that people can actually read without looking at them and deciphering them through your art? And do you ever perform them? Um, I don't. No, I feel like the whole point of them is to be opaque and to only be either experienced through a painting or through uttering the poem. So I feel like if I were to publish them, that might defeat, I don't know, maybe in like a few years or a few decades, I'll kind of give up on that kind of standard and just release them. Um, And also, I guess if you see them as written word, it's actually quite a different 
experience. You know, yeah. and even hearing you just then yeah. read that out, it yeah. kind of conjures up so many, you know, it's a very different thing. And I know that you were inspired by people like Frank O'Hara and Lawrence yeah. Ferlinghetti, but yeah. were there other writers? And, and what age were you when you sort of realized you were interested in poetry? Because it's quite a specific thing to be into poetry. Um, honestly, I, it was during university, it was during college. Um, it was specifically Having a Coke With You by Frank O'Hara. And well, actually, he he was so that poem was kind of referenced and cited in this in this text as kind of theorist and um, writer and professor called Jose Espan Munoz in his text Cruising Utopia, um, which I have, I have yeah, that here. Yeah. Yes, have, well. have you read it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read yeah. bits. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. It's, all, bits. it's yeah. awesome. I read yeah. It when I was at university. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, you told me to get that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, in one of the chapters, he examines that poem, Having Coke With You by Frank O'Hara. And uh, I can't remember exactly what he says, but I think the whole point is about community and communion. And with Frank O'Hara as well, he kind of um, coined this term personism to describe his poems, which is basically... So for example, Having a Coke With You is done in second person. It's very clearly about the relationship between the poem and this other unidentified you. So it's about the relation, which is kind of what my practice is intended to be about. I was like, oh, okay, that fits. And so I looked more into Frank O'Hara um, as a result. So I think that was why. I was actually reading that text by Espan Munoz um, and getting into poetry that way. Very cool. It's very cool. The structure of your practice um, is does actually take on another Chinese tradition, which is called the three perfections, which is yeah. poetry, calligraphy, and painting. And yeah. when you know that and you see your work, you're like, well, there you go. That's that is there's three perfections there that all come to play. Yeah, and I, I didn't, I didn't really. I, I was already making work um, on that kind of rubric, and then I found out about the three perfections, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that makes that kind of fits, and it's weird to. It's kind of nice, I guess, to think that I've been working in this tradition, very traditional Chinese um, aesthetic mode, so to speak, without kind of knowing it. And now I do kind of more working with that and being more kind of conscious of it. Yeah, it's good. So in, in your new show at James Fuentes, you kindly gave us a preview. And I yes, think secret preview. Out, <laughs> yeah, I got very preview. excited. Yes. Um, but when this episode comes out, uh, the listeners will be able to find this show online or in New York, of course. Yeah. But there's some amazing new work mm. here. And your colour palette in particular, I feel like you've just taken it to another level. Like and it's extraordinary. Appearing and, and like yeah, nature elements. Celestial of stars, like, constellations, yes. zodiacs. It's, yeah, it's phenomenal. And, and also the, the pose of the body. So like... What is this kind of like arm wrestle kind of connection? Oh, happening? yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about that? Because I'm fascinated. That, that is me and my roommate, Morgan. Morgan's very, very dear to me. Um, she's, she's, she's actually featured in that painting in Margate. Yes, in yeah. Margate. I recognized her. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But now you're reunited in America. Yeah. Um, that painting was, it was a, meant to be a bit funny. Meant to be kind of ooh, like kind of an arm wrestle, <laughs> um, and that painting was kind of, um, I guess. So like in that painting, I'm my muscles kind of flex and they're kind of straining a lot, and Morgan looks kind of yeah. effortless. So I wanted to try and play on that kind of queer dynamic of butchness and feminist mm -hmm. and sissiness and all that, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Well, I loved it. So, so this show that's coming up, and you had the show in uh, the the uh, poems on paper. The, what's it called? Poem picture show, and you've uh, had the show in Italy. What what is it feeling like for you now? Because there's again, there's a lot of attention on you. A lot of people are talking about you. You're becoming part of the conversation when it comes to, you know, you're saying about uh, figuration at the moment and diverse figuration and representation. What what is your kind of hopes and fears of the situation you're in? Because you're in a, you're in a sweet spot now where it's <laughs> it yeah. feels like it's about to take off for you. What what does that feel like? Um, it's honestly felt really been fucking insane to put it one way Mm -hmm. it was it was a big big gamble to come to new york and to study art and my parents really didn't want me to so i really kind of fought against them um, for that and i worked a lot and it's yeah i don't know it's just it's all it's all paying off and it feels very very Nice, you know, especially being able to graduate um, and financially support myself through painting and being an artist is something that not many artists get to do, especially straight out of college and something I feel very just, I don't know, very fortunate and lucky and yeah, very blessed. What's Um, the best advice you've had for your kind of career and your art so far? Best advice? Um, Learning to say no. Yep to people and to things. Um, yeah, and I guess not overextending yourself. Like, for, so I've, especially for this, the show, James Fuentes, I've I've, oh, I've worked on the show for like the past 14 months. Like I started working on it um, when I had to go home to Liverpool or quarantine. And so, and I also, I was completing my undergraduate degree at the same time. Um, and it was also, you know, during the pandemic winter. So, um, the pandemic winter, I like that. Yeah, very great. Oh, you mean, you know, oh, like, you, I mean, oh, you mean the actual t- the temperature of winter? I thought it was like the pandemic, like we're in a desert. The pandemic, the pandemic <laughs> winter is how we're describing this period in history now. I mean, it's kind of like that. Like, yeah. yeah, like that December, yeah. January, February, at least in New York, it was snowing a lot. You know, obviously, we couldn't really go out clubbing or anything. Mm. It was very kind of bleak, to say the least. Um, and so I've had to say no to a few things recently because I just want to kind of vacation, a little work break. Um, so that's been yeah. Some you need good to live, live your life, don't you? Otherwise, otherwise, like you you know, what will your work become anyway? Because it's kind of informed by by living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So that's definitely been a kind of key advice, formative piece of advice, is to learn how to say no. I think especially when you're a young artist or you're an emerging artist and all these kind of opportunities present themselves to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really exciting, but sometimes they may not be the best or you're, you you may be overextending yourself for them. Mm-hmm. And so having to, having to say no to things, learning to say no is really hard, especially when you're just starting out. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely a major piece of advice that has helped me a lot. Mm. And you have also have a really a... incredible support network there with, with artists like Deron, for example, Deron Langberg feels yeah. like he's a massive champion of so he's many awesome. artists. He's awesome. Yeah. And him yeah. getting, you know, showing your work to me and other people. And it feels like you are part of a crew that are kind of <laughs> changing the game at the minute. That must feel really, um, 
that must feel really safe. That must feel really kind of comforting and calming. Yeah, and it's, I think the fact that there are a lot of artists working with similar themes, obviously everyone's doing their own thing. Um, it's nice, it feels like you're kind of part of something, um, part of a movement. And it's also, I don't think, I think the way these things happen, it's not like you see another artist and think, oh, I'm going to do that stuff. It's almost like we were all doing, like, for example, I've always done figures of art, even back in high school. Um, it's almost like we were all kind of influenced by the same kind of happenings and about and the kind of evolution and hap- and changes uh, in the world that we've all kind of responded to in similar ways. You know, if you think about queer intimism and things like that, for example. And we've all kind of naturally and organically worked with similar themes. Mm. It's nice. It's like, yeah, totally. it's nice to know that. It was, it was really exciting people. to see that um, there's a few of, you, of um, the painters that we're friends with and have supported on Talk Art who are all going to be participating, including yourself, at Silver Art Projects in the World Trade Center, like Sky High, as you described it. Um, yeah. Are you looking forward to that to that residency? Yeah, Susan yeah. Chen is doing that as well. She's yeah, a friend. Of she's also it. in the show in Margate. And isn't Salman Tour as well? Yeah, really excited. What really, really what excited. Actually, uh, it's it's a, basically a residency in the world in the World Trade Center. I can't remember which floor it is, but the view is insane. Really. Um, For how long? I think eight months. Wow. Yeah, almost a year. It's crazy. Yeah, it's really. <laughs> this is the Freedom Tower. This is what it, it, it's. You yeah. Sort of, the people who live outside of New York call it the Freedom Tower. The uncool yeah. people, but the cool people call it One World Trade, don't they? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, this so there's like multiple World Trade Centers in the same complex. This one right. is, I think, the fourth World Trade Center. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely insane. I was, I was there to visit like a, f- a few weeks ago, months ago, and just the viewers absolutely. Bonkers. It's like you're on top of the world. <laughs> a lot of natural light. That's a lot of natural nice. light. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just very, very humbling. And I think being there and seeing the kind of view and really feeling like you're on top of the world. Um, was, yeah, I guess it just felt crazy. I didn't really expect <laughs> this yeah. to happen, really, at all. When I was, you know, back in Liverpool and like applying to colleges and stuff, I didn't really think I'd be in the World Trade Center. At the end of it. So yeah, just very, very humbling, very just great and <laughs> exciting. It's well deserved, Oscar. Well deserved. Yeah. So what can people expect from uh, your upcoming show, which is on mm-hmm. at James Fuentes Gallery called A Sky Liquor Relation. You need to tell mm-hmm. me about that title as well that's forthcoming. Mm-hmm. What can we expect from this show and what what is this body of work? Uh, so firstly, the title... Uh, Sky Liquor comes from this poem, kind of book-length poem written by this um, philosopher-poet, M.A. Césaire. Um, and Sky Liquor kind of refers to birds. And so, you know, my pra- if I'm a bird and my practice is about kind of relation, the Sky Liquor relation is kind of about that. Uh, what, what people can expect, it's all figurative works. It's all people. There's 10 works. Mostly big, uh, yeah, I think there's like seven big works, two me- two small works and more medium-sized work. It's, I've been working on it for a hell of a long time, so I, I hope people like it. Um, what can they expect? I think they can expect um, my work being really developed 
and a lot of the kind of I've not really had the chance to present my figurative work in a kind of single cohesive exhibition and so mm. this is going to be the chance to do it and so I think people are going to be able to see the kind of symbolic language that repeats and the kind of repeating symbols I use all throughout my practice within one room in different paintings mm. which I'm excited for um and seeing all the works in relation to each other, uh, yeah, I hope. And these hope come from like 2019 it. up to 2021, right? Yeah, there's a work, a self-portrait that I'm loaning for the show. Um, that's going to be the earliest work. Um, yeah, so it spans quite a long time. Mm-hmm. That's 2019, I, that one. Yeah. 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 I really love all the um, tattoos as well. I feel like that's a whole other kind of history and language Mm -hmm. in itself. Yeah. Um, There are some paintings where I've kind of painted a particular symbol because someone has that tattoo. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So the kind of the the smaller self-portrait in the preview I sent you, I have a tattoo there, but I don't actually have that in real life. It's kind of a fake tattoo. Um, Right. Of a dragon. Yeah, a dragon. Um, So these symbols sort of stand in as signifiers then for, like you were saying, that someone's, if they haven't got a tattoo, they have, or that would appear in the image as a signifier for their personality, for their individualism. Yeah, 100%. Like there are some people who are um, Sagittarius, Sagittarians. So I think the kind of symbol for Sagittarius. um, And that's that's the man, isn't it, with the horse legs? Is it that one that's kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is quite like a a masculine sort of like imagery as well, isn't it, I guess? There's really muscled... What do we call them animals? They're minotaurs, not minotaurs. What are they? Maybe they're Uh, the um, centaurs. Centaurs, Centaurs, that's it. Centaurs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, centaur is sexy and and butch. Yeah. There's there's one painting... um, with my roommate Morgan and her girlfriend Tara and they're both Capricorns and so which is the the sea goat and so symbolize that with a two-headed sea goat to symbolize them both and above me uh, above the sea goat is a train kind of symbolizes our relationship a train so what's the train a, 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 a crane a crane oh a crane yeah, yeah. okay sorry Got yeah. it. yes you have the crane yes amazing well I think everyone's going to love this show but um, we have two questions that we ask every guest that comes on the first one is if you could do an art heist uh, you could have collect have anything in the world any work of art from anywhere in the world any size we can help you out of it what would it be and why is it theft or is it legal it's a nice theft yes a lovely okay. theft okay it's like a dream it's a dream it theft it doesn't have to be real yeah. ethical theft okay. yeah. uh, definitely ethical theft yeah definitely what's the one piece god I don't, know, I don't even know which piece I would take from Martin Wong. It'd definitely be a Martin Wong though, would it? Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, his work is, yeah. There was recently a show at PPOW Gallery in New mm. York mm-hmm. that had Martin Wong with Aaron Gilbert. Mm. That was the first time I had literally ever seen a Martin Wong painting. Oh, besides the show I curated, but um, the first time I'd seen a kind of Martin Wong painting exhibition in the flesh. And that, no, actually, there's a painting in, I think, the MoMA that is a Martin Wong piece as well. Mm. Um, it's the so prison yeah. bunk beds. So that one, is that the one that was in the show? It's like a, a prison bunk beds from above from an aerial view. Yeah, it's so awesome. Yes. It's, like, like, it's so yes. creative. It's, so, yes, it's so, creative. so creative. Well, you pointed me in the direction of a Martin Wong photograph, which is him sitting on his bed in a cowboy hat. 
I don't think yeah, we've really referenced that. That was like, and that that felt like when I saw that, that also opened up a door to your work as well. I was like, wow, that is really. And I don't know that that what came first, you you with a cowboy hat, or seeing that image of Martin Wong, or maybe that had been there, you know, peripherally for you, like a synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. It's probably around the same time. Right. Um, I think when you Google Martin Wong, it's like one of the first images that come up. So I think yeah. probably when I Googled Martin Wong for the first time, I saw that image and that probably started some things in my head. Cox, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. PPOW Gallery is so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Which I'm quite intrigued to ask you, considering how bright your palette is currently mm. in your paintings. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I don't dress very brightly. I wear a lot of dark colours and so my paintings are kind of opposite to that. Uh, favourite colour? I don't know. <laughs> There's so many. Um, favourite colour in... Gosh. Maybe like blue, like really electric mm. blue. Kind of oh. cobalt blue, ultramarine blue. I think it's a really beautiful colour. And I, I use blue a lot. Probably blue, too yeah. much, I've noticed in my Not work. Not too much. Love blue. Okay, I, I'm getting kind of sick of it. But I love that colour. And I, I always try and wear it as often as possible. But mm. I always kind of shy away and take it off and put on the black um, immediately. And, um, and talk, talking of black, you're currently wearing on your Instagram profile uh, a mask, a black mask. Which yeah. looks kind of like an S&M kind of... Madonna era erotica. Yes, I have it here. I have it here. And it's also in one of the paintings, which is a portrait of yourself. Yeah, so can you it's explain? It's kind of like a Batman mask, but then it's also kind of a masquerade ball. It could be Venice, it could be like a yeah, mask then it's ball. fetish. Yeah, yeah fetish. Yeah. Yeah. It could be fetish. Well, it's the costume that Bruce Lee wore when he played the character of Kato uh, in the yes. TV show, The Green Hornet in the 60s. Um, yeah, he wore this leather mask, this valet hat. It's very, very kinky, to be honest. I mean, a lot of superhero kind of outfits are very, very gotcha. kinky. Yeah. yeah, and so I uh, dressed up as that. And I, so for the painting, um, in which I'm dressed up like that, I wanted to try and, I guess, emphasize the sadomasochistic leather, Thomathan, and kind of homoeroticism that is kind of latent within that. And obviously how... That relates to, you know, Bruce Lee in this kind of Asian, kind of masculine figure as well. Yeah. And these are all works on canvas in this show. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. What was it like for you being in the generation of, like, Instagram? Because as an artist, like, I feel like there's this kind of pressure now to, like, put yourself out into the world and almost curate some kind of feed that then translates into an understanding of what your work is or who you are. I'm only asking because in your works you have incredible style, like in the actual paintings, like if you think of the belt in one of the new paintings, like, I don't know, I always look at your paintings and I'm like, I want to wear all the clothes that Oscar's wearing. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, and and the, way, the way that you, you portray yourself yes. in photography and in yeah. self-portraits through Instagram, I think it's extraordinary. I mean, like, yeah, your hair alone is so iconic. <laughs> we need to talk about your hair. Thank you. <laughs> how, important, uh, how important is your hair? Oh yeah, it's very, I mean, I've had this hairstyle since, I was young. Um, yeah, very important. Yeah, it's just a part of my look, I guess. Um, You're all bashful now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but my... Okay, so Instagram. Yeah, I definitely grew up on Instagram. Um, I grew up on the internet. Um, 1998, yeah, you must have done 98, it. 98, yeah. yeah. 
I was, I think it kind of, I'm, I've always been very kind of fluent, like a lot of my generation in Instagram. Um, and I think that really helped me actually starting out because I was very, I knew very much that I had to be kind of professional on that particular Instagram page. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I have to give off a particular impression. It's very curated. But I have like five Instagram accounts, each with varying degrees of privacy. And so for me, it doesn't really feel like that kind what? of... What? You've got five Instagram accounts? Yeah. What, what do you do? No Just secret. Like, what, the, what the fuck? So what do you do? What, what are they all involved in? Okay, what, well, why do you need five? Wait, well, they can't tell us. Four of them are secret. They're, they're secret. But So one is my kind of, you know, professional one, kind of forward-facing one. The other is my more of a personal one. I post pictures of my friends and things like that. It's more casual. Um, then there are kind of more degrees of privacy and things like that. Um, yeah, so that's why. So I think growing up on Instagram, I was very much aware of how to, yeah, I guess how to behave on Instagram. Mm. Mm. Or communicate as well, I think. Because so you, you've got this kind of very nonchalant, cool thing going on, <laughs> which reminds me, weirdly, a, a lot of the kind of 70s era, like when you see all those amazing Polaroids. Oh, and yeah. weirdly, I think there's something you're doing, and it's probably not even intentional. And having spoken to you today, like, you definitely have a kind of aura about you. Mm. Like, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I just think it's very authentic, actually. It's quite like, rock and roll, really isn't it? Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks, I guess. Uh, I I don't know how to respond to that. We're embarrassing, you know, we're like really embarrassing parents. um, With Polaroids, I I really like using Polaroids because it's a very kind of intentional photo. I I, I used to shoot a lot on film photography, um, but it's a very intentional photo. It's a very physical object. It's expensive. It's like $1.50 for a a print. Um, And so... Using Polaroid cameras has really kind of helped me kind of be very intentional and focused with kind of photography. Because it's very easy to take an image. It, it, a photo image has been very, very cheap. And there's obviously a lot of upsides to that. You know, photography is very accessible. Photo documentation as well, for example. But yeah, I, I love Polaroids because they're so, each one's very special. It's very physical. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the lighting is always so particular in them as well. I mm. think. Yeah. There's Nora in, in, well, in nostalgia, there as a, as a instant medium, nostalgia, yeah. isn't there too? Then. Yeah. Well, Oscar, it has been such a privilege to spend this hour and a bit with you. It's been a pleasure. Um, I really hope we can fly to New York and see your show because I really want to mm. see an Oscar you, you, your whole show yeah. in real life. Yeah, I've, I've been so happy to follow them. follow you and be friends with you throughout this time and just you know, like just tell everyone about you and try and get you involved as much as possible. In what <laughs> well, I'm doing. well, yeah, I mean, it's been. I have to give you like a really big thanks, Russell. I think when you like showed my work to all those people and your friends, are you helped me a lot and really kind of shone a light on my career and I'm very grateful to you actually because now I'm able to like be a fucking artist in New York um yeah and I wouldn't be here without people who like supported me been with my kind of it's a total privilege it's easy peasy because you're excellent so don't worry (laughs) you're so driven I love it I love that you just do your thing yeah very generous yes thank you was that alright for you? yeah it's been such a pleasure to be able to chat with you guys not just over like dm or email yeah, exactly. it's not in person still but yeah it's great One to day. i guess e-meet you guys 
properly. Absolutely. I meant to say to you earlier, you know, you were talking about saying no to things. Yeah. We, we've got this thing now where we say not for now, because I think sometimes when people give you opportunities, it's just not the right time. Oh, and awesome. It might be that in 20 years time, it's the right time. That's a great you know idea. I mean? Not for now. So yeah, saying yeah. not for now is quite not, yeah. not for the moment, but not for the yeah, moment. Ask yeah. me again. Because sometimes you might want to do stuff, but it might be something you want to do in five years time. Yeah, know? yeah. Not for now. That's really, yeah. Yeah, not for now. That's great advice. Next podcast, I'll say that's the best advice I've received. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Quote us for it. But no, it's, it's so exciting seeing how everything's just like soaring for you. It's really, really brilliant and deserved. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, for images of all artworks we've discussed in today's episode, you will find them at our Instagram, which is obviously at TalkArt. You can also visit Oscar's public-facing Instagram, <laughs> which is um, O-S-C-Y-H-O-U. Yeah. Osc E Po. Yeah, it's... <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, and you'll hopefully still see the um, fetish mask. Yeah. Or Bruce Lee mask. It's funny because that Instagram and then the James Fuentes Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Osk Osk Waiho was meant to be pronounced Osk Waiho because Yi Ming is my middle name, but I think everyone thought it was Oski Ho. So people just call me Oski now, which I didn't intend. But I really like Oski. Hey, Oski. Yeah, I'm like, okay, that wasn't my intention, but okay. Um, yeah, and then James Fuentes uh, in New York. You can visit his Instagram as well, which is James underscore Fuentes underscore LLC. Yeah. Big shout out to James. And um, yeah, we will be back very soon. Yes, thank you very much. Stick around, Thanks Oscar. Bye, Oscar. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.